Hello, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Steak and Eggs. And as always, I'm joined with Emeru and Tectone. And this week, we're joined with somebody very special, Greg Street. Uh, welcome to the show. How are you doing? It's really glad to be here. Of course. Oh, my God. Okay. Well, yeah. I mean, of course. And and now you're involved in game dev. What made you want to start your own studio? Because, like, obviously you worked previously at Warcraft or Blizzard at Warcraft and then Riot. worked with Riot on the MMO and probably League of Legends as well also, I believe. Like, what made you want to go and make your own studio instead? I really appreciated all the places I got to work. I got to work with great teams and great games, and I was really fortunate in this field to not ever like really struggle for funding, which is a, a big, big challenge. But I feel like all of the three places I worked were slow, and they're slow because they're big companies, and I think big mm. companies just by definition move slowly. Yeah. And I felt like, you know, we could make a game a lot faster than this if we just kind of got rid of all of the approval layers in the way. So... Maybe I'm wrong and we'll fall flat on our face, but that's the theory is that we can move really fast. So how fast are you moving then? What is the exact day that Ghost is going to come out? <laughs> <laughs> July 17th Ooh. of 20... No, I don't know. Oh, uh, yeah. I believe it for a second. <laughs> no, and, and you know, if there was a date like that, it's because for any company, it's because like marketing. Picture. Sure, the, sure. The devs don't know until you get a lot closer because we have all these assumptions and right now we're in the process of starting to, to play test them and to see what's working, but but stuff's gonna change and we wanna have a really open play test process and players are gonna tell us, you know, this feature sounded cool on paper, kinda sucks, so we wanna have time to, to make it good before we actually launch. When do you think the first play test is gonna be? If it was up to me, it'd be really soon. Okay. I think okay. the team is a little more conservative. They're like, wait, 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 let's like have some you know better art in the game. First. Yeah, yeah, no doubt. But it, it, it will be a lot earlier than a lot of games um, let themselves be played. Oh, no, no. I was going to ask a little bit about the art, right? Because obviously, you know, with League and WoW, they are very stylized games. I saw you did a tweet and you talked a little bit about it is you were saying somewhere in the middle. What's your philosophy on art style for a game like this? Because you mentioned you wanted Ghost to be playable indefinitely, right? For 10, 20 years. How do you make an art style that lasts for 10 to 20 years? That is an advantage of a stylized that our style's a little bit stylized. Like, I'm not saying we'll go World of Warcraft level or certainly yeah. not like yeah. Fortnite level, but when you try to go photorealistic, that ages really, really quickly. Yep. And it, it takes forever anyway. So we will probably end up being not photorealistic. We'll be a little more, a little more stylized. Mm -hmm. um, mm -hmm. If I had to guess a little more mature than kind of the World of Warcraft look, but, but we'll see. Okay, yeah, I guess that kind of makes a lot of sense. And you're starting to see other games that are trying to figure out where on that spectrum they want to be on. So, yeah, I, I do think that, I mean, especially making those hyper-realistic games, like I remember seeing a game in 2014 and, oh, wow, these graphics are so amazing. And then by 2018, it's like, oh, it's another game, right? And, yeah, yeah I think you're definitely right about that. So, uh, Greg, you talked a little bit about kind of being able to develop things very quickly and, you know, like the pacing of content development, how it's responding to the community. And I think, like, let's be real. 
There's been a huge controversy recently with Power World, people talking mm. about AI. How do you feel like AI fits into game development? And how do you feel like, you know, because you've been in the industry for, what, 25 years now, it's such a long time. How do you feel like it's going to evolve the industry? How do you think it's going to change it? And do you think that, like, you will try to use different versions of that on Ghost? Or are you not sure yet? You're waiting to see kind of how the technology evolves? There's definitely places we will use AI. I think the the big question is around the generative AI, where right, it goes right. and like pulls text or images off of the internet and you know, may or may not violate copyrights or steal artists' work or stuff like that. So mm-hmm, mm-hmm. we we won't have any of that AI in um, in Ghost. At least we're not planning on it. Where we might do stuff is, you know things like armor fitting or interpolating animations or maybe even like making the grass on the hillside look random rather than uh, placed by an artist. But I don't think we're going to go the route of the NPC. We don't have to write any dialogues. The NPC magically says interesting things. I I just don't know if the technology is there yet. Well, the technology is there for the NPC to say things. It's not there for the NPC to say interesting things. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's that's really where the problem is. And uh, obviously, like with making a, a new MMO with a new studio and everything, like an MMO, and I'm pretty sure you would understand this better than I do, so correct me if I'm wrong, it seems like an MMO is like the hardest type of game to make. How do you do that with a small studio? I think you're right. I've I've said that before because an MMO has to have almost every every kind of system you can imagine. It, right. It needs right. rewards. It needs a good camera. It needs good network code. It needs PvP combat. Um, what we're doing is starting with like experts in each area. So we mm-hmm. have someone who's just doing UX. We'll have someone who's just doing VFX. Someone who's just doing audio. And then, based on that, we might be able to outsource some of the other components, but if not, we'll just hire up what we need for those particular fields. Right, okay. I think okay. starting small, having really good tools, hopefully will let us do a lot with what we have. So you bring in an expert in each different area, and then that person kind of builds out the team that they need for that section of the game? Exactly. Okay, I think that makes a lot of sense. And and I think that one really big difference between like, you know, what you're doing and with, for example, like a Blizzard or Riot or a lot of these other big companies, and I think the only real parallel that we see to this right now is Ashes of Creation. I'm sure I think that you mentioned them actually on the last video that you did, the live stream. And uh, you're completely open book. You're talking about everything like just having an open conversation. And I'm, I'm wondering, because like I used to read the Dev Water Coolers back in the day with like, you know, Mists of Pandaria, et cetera. Like, did that kind of inform your decision to do that? Or how did you arrive at the decision to just completely have an open book in terms of development? Oh, 100%. Like yeah. going all the way yeah. back to Age of Empires, like we were talking oh. about, I used to say, we're not sure if this, I don't know, if this civilization bonus is good or not. Let's ask the community what they think. Yeah. And, yeah. you know, Microsoft and everyone kind of freaked out about that. It's like, well, you can't go ask ask players. They'll think we're incompetent if we, you know, have to ask them their opinion. But I've just come to believe over time that why would you not want people, like, poking holes in your ideas or making suggestions or saying, yeah, we're not really excited about that feature. We're more excited about another feature. I mean, yeah. the reason yeah. people don't want to do it is it takes a lot of bandwidth. 
you'll probably get some, you know, hateful assholes out there who say things that, that you know, you don't want to hear. Um, but really, it, I mean, if we're going to launch a game and players are going to not like aspects of it, I'd rather know that before we launch the game, you know? Yep. So how much of your game kind of like, uh, obviously I've seen a lot of discourse about the red and blue zones. And I'm actually really curious that like, how much of that is open to interpretation by the player base? Like whenever that first play test comes out, what do you, what kind of information are you hoping to get out of the players? I mean, it depends on how much, you know, like how robust everything is yeah. at that point. Yeah. But what we really hope to hear are things like a player saying, this blue zone feels too randomly generated. It, it uh -huh. doesn't feel uh -huh. like there's any, any love there. There aren't interesting things. It feels very um, computer made and dead. Or they don't, players aren't sure why they should like migrate from a blue zone to a red zone and back because the, the core loop isn't telling them, well, maybe you should go to a red zone now because it has a, a reward you want or something like that. I think both of those would be excellent sources of feedback. Just like kind of like, is this how much of this is a guided experience versus how much of it am I trying to like just figure out myself and kind of just, you know, take a shotgun approach to, I guess you could say. But yeah, we really yeah. want yeah. exploration to be a big thing. Okay. At the same time, World of Warcraft was so, you know, got so popular because it offers a really directed experience. You, you step out of, you know, your, your quest zone and immediately there's a quest giver saying, well, why don't you go here next? There's another quest to follow. And you can just scoop up quests and make it all the way to max level and even beyond just doing that. So if we are asking players to go out and explore a little more and kind of see what's over the next hill, that's a different experience than, than World of Warcraft's kind of quest-based system. It's probably a little more like um, um, Legend of Zelda, the, the two most recent games. And now, a word from our sponsors. Hi there, retired bomber pilot Asmongold here to tell you about today's sponsor, War Thunder. Featuring over 2,500 tanks, planes, helicopters, and ships, War Thunder is the most comprehensive vehicle combat game ever, and it's available for free right now on PC and consoles. Join a community of over 70 million players and immerse yourself in PvP combat by piloting history's most powerful war machines. You'll be able to customize each of them to your liking with a huge variety of camouflages, historical markings, and even community-created decorations. And if you don't believe me, just ask my co-pilot, Amaru. Believe it or not, she has over 300 confirmed kills. War Thunder also features one of the most intricate vehicle damage systems in gaming, with each vehicle component designed to respond to harm in a realistic manner. The whole experience is so realistic and immersive, in fact, that sometimes it reminds me of the war. A little bit too much. To jump into War Thunder for free yourself, check out our link in the description or in the pinned comment below. It's available on PC, PlayStation, and Xbox, and there's a massive bonus pack available for new and returning players who are signing back on for the first time in over six months. The bonus pack includes rewards such as the exclusive vehicle decorator Eagle of Valor, 100,000 Silver Lions, and seven days of premium. These bonuses are available for a limited time only, so check it out soon. Thanks, War Thunder, for sponsoring our podcast. You play Elden Ring? Yeah, yeah, a ton. What do you think about the quest in that game? 
I mean, it's awesome. The <laughs> parts I don't like about it are, you know, yeah. keeping a notepad next to me or something to write it all down. But <laughs> yeah. The way they're not in your face, the way it feels like really woven into the into the world, the way you can like miss quest and even after your third or fourth playthrough, you're finding new stuff. Like I think that's really cool. And like what other games, like, because obviously you brought Elden Ring, like, and, uh, you know, maybe a couple of other ones so far. What other games you've been playing recently that you feel like has really kind of given you insight into, like, kind of how you want to kind of move your game? Oh, wow. Yeah. I'm trying to think, going a little back again. Um, I've played a ton recently. Um, we have a lot of, I mean, a lot of influence from, from Valheim because that was kind of the less hardcore survival game that came out during the pandemic and everyone was wanting something kind of cozy to, to do with their friends. So we yeah, I have 300 that. hours in it. Yeah. Yeah. We <laughs> looked at that game a ton. Um, there's a couple of, Oh, I wish I could remember. There's a couple of combat games we've looked at that do a pretty good job of, um, they're not great games. So I don't necessarily want to say uh-huh, their names, but yeah. they do a good job with the kind of combat that, uh, we're trying to do. So we've been looking at those a lot. A big conversation with MMOs is tab targeting versus uh, action combat. Where are you with that? We're, I mean, we're much closer to tab targeting than, than action okay. combat. Okay. And the reason I say that is, going back to Elden Ring, which I'd say has much more action combat, yes. you can be the guy with a pot on your head and no armor and beat really, really tough bosses because you're so good at execution. Let me solo her. Yes. Yeah, yeah. To us, that doesn't feel like an MMO. An MMO feels like you need to like get the good gear to have a chance to beat the boss. And if gear mm-hmm. feels really optional, we worry it, it just won't have that, that kind of RPG feel. So we want to be more action-y in the sense that you can move around the battlefield a little bit and positioning matters and you're not just going to you know sit there swinging at the target over and over again, but not so action-y that like, you can dodge everything and take zero damage. Yeah, okay, that makes sense. I, I feel like there was a lot of like classic WoW and old school WoW bosses that kind of followed that same paradigm where it's like you can do it undergeared, but you sure can't do it with no gear. So I think that definitely makes sense. And like obviously with, with managing player expectations, do you think that this is a, a problem with doing the open development strategy or is it kind of you know a double-edged sword basically? Like you're going to have some advantages with some disadvantages? Oh, yeah. I mean, there are going to be players yeah, outright yeah. who say, oh, if it's tab targeting, I'm not going to play it. You know, Naturally. Out trying it, they're just going to say that. Yeah. Um, yeah. But, you know, we tried, like, healing is hard without some level of targeting. If you don't target with healing, you end up with a lot of, like, smart heals or area heals. And there's oh, not, man. It's not, like, super satisfying that way. Yeah, I, I played New World. Yeah, I, I know. <laughs> and uh, I actually am kind of curious about, uh, you know, like obviously you've been in games forever. I'm curious, what mistakes have you seen games make in the past that you feel like you're trying to avoid with making Ghost? Oh, gosh. I mean, we could talk for hours. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. A really big one that drove our development philosophy is that a lot of MMOs come out with a great level up experience because that's what the devs mm. focused on, and that's what was play-tested. And then you get to max level, and you're like, well, now what? And the yeah. devs are like, yeah. well, give us three months, and we'll make new content for yep. you. And so we really, really want to avoid that. We want to make sure our end game is solid. And the only way to make sure it's solid is by letting players play-test the end game. 
And so whenever you talk about Endgame, like Endgame is really all about the systems. Like the systems are the driving factor, I feel like, for almost all of the Endgame, like at least experiences that I've had in MMOs. And like, how do you balance between, you know, systems and just kind of raw, um, like just spontaneous gameplay, like exploration types type stuff? It really is driven to a, a high degree by the rewards because uh-huh, uh-huh. particularly at, at Endgame, players get very focused on what do I do to get that next power increase, whether it's a new piece of gear or, or whatever. And so wherever the rewards point them is, is kind of where players go. And if you teach players, hey, wandering around in the open world is very inefficient, they, they'll just stop doing it. And if you tell them, oh, mythic raiding, that's where it's at, they'll like, you know, kill themselves doing mythic raiding. So we just need a rewards design that says, for example, rating may be the most efficient way to gear up, but it's not the only way. And if you want to just kind of um, push blue shards or run through the hardest blue shards, that is also a good way to get in-game rewards. It's kind of like a timeless aisle back in the day, a little bit like that. Yeah, Candace brings that up all the time. That mm-hmm. Timeless aisle is a great example. Um, and I don't say that lightly because I know Blizzard has also tried to recreate Timeless Fire sure yeah. to, to great effect, but yeah. it feels like a good end game. It's, and it also, it's not too directed. A lot of it is, I'm just going to kind of see what happens. I'm going to try this and, and maybe I'll be rewarded for it. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And like, obviously, like with MMOs, MMOs are a very interesting genre because you have such a massive spectrum of people that are trying to play them. You have people that are trying to play them like it's an esport, and people are trying to play them three hours a week. And so, like, how do you balance between making content for pro players versus making content for like casual players? And just like in general, like you remember, like with WoW, right? It was always PvPers versus raiders and stuff like that. Like, how how, how do you deal with that? It's, it's a bit of a, it's almost like a cop-out answer because right, right. to have a big enough audience to kind of make an MMO feel like an MMO, you, mm-hmm. need, to, you need to appeal to a lot of different players. You can't just say, we're the MMO for like hardcore PvPers because that may be a very small audience. So you just have to think about what is satisfying to different groups of players and how can you deliver an experience that, that they will enjoy. Now, again, we can't be everything to everyone. We're probably not going to be a, a professional eSport, for example. But we think we can offer um, at least a competitive PvE scene that may be worth streaming. We think we can have PvP because that's, you know, it's important to a lot of players. Um, and just make sure that if all you care about is, like, I don't know, hanging out with your friends in blue shards and you're not ever going to run raiding... You may have less to do, but you'll still have something to do. And you may just run out of content if you don't participate in, in you know, whole swaths of the game. Yeah, I think that's true. I'm actually kind of curious, like, what's your philosophy? Because, like, it's always good. Like, so I think that MMOs, like, one thing that's good is to have people be able to do what they want to do, but also have, like, really great incentives to just kind of, you know, come a little bit out of their shell, right? You have, like, for example, like, a new WoW player. They don't really like playing with other people, but they really want to kill hoggers, so they're going to have to get into a group and, you know, do something, or dead mines, right? And they hit that wall. Like, how do you, how do you feel like approaching that friction is like a healthy, like where's that healthy balance between allowing people to play the game the way they want and then also creating friction that can feel good to overcome as terms of like being in a big group or, you know, being able to like maybe do a profession that gives you an advantage or PVP or anything like that. 
I, I think the friction's important. And I yeah. know yeah. as devs, it's really easy for us to kind of give in to the players. Players are frustrated because they want to achieve something and, and there's a barrier in the way. So it's really tempting to say, well, let's just remove the barrier and maybe they'll have more fun. But sometimes it's that, you know, it's that struggle that makes it so rewarding. And the reason, you know, killing Millennia and Elden Ring feels like an accomplishment is because she's freaking hard. And so not everything in Ghost needs to be freaking hard, but yeah. occasionally you should come up against bosses that you can't solo. And yeah, you can skip them or you can see if there's other players around who want to jump in with you. Ooh, I've got a really good question. So like, you remember back in Legion where they had the Mage Tower? And like, you're starting to see like a lot of these other MMOs that have like these solo challenges, like RuneScape has a lot of these, for example, too. And like, how do you like, do you feel like an MMO needs to have those solo challenges? Or do you want to have a focus on group challenges like traditional raid content? Because I'm starting to see a bit of a divergence here with different MMOs that are being released. I mean, my philosophy tends to be very much on the group side because okay. that's the magic of MMOs is there's other players around. You know, yeah, there yeah. are great single player RPGs like play, you know, play Baldur, Elden Ring or Baldur's Gate offer a great single player experience. What a massive multiplayer game offers is lots and lots of other players. So, and, you know, I may lose the fight on this and, and there may be other people on the team or players who really pressure us to create a little more solo content. But I worry that's kind of a distraction from the, the heart of the game, which mm -hmm, is mm -hmm. either friends or randos just kind of grouping up to um, over, overcome something. Well, how many people, how many friends, how many randos do you think it would be good for a raid? Are we talking about 40 people, 8 people, like Final Fantasy, 20, like Retail WoW? Where are we at? It's funny because there are reasons why smaller raids are more hardcore and there's reasons why larger raids are more hardcore. Yeah, yeah. logistical. Yeah, you probably know what I'm going to say here, but the oh, challenge unfortunately. Raids is like everyone has to be on their game and there's yep. no room for like, you know, your buddy from work who's not great at the game but is really excited to come along. Like when you did Molten Core, there was room for people like that because you, sure didn't was. Need, you needed 40, but you didn't need all 40 to be at the top of their game. Um, Players kind of burnt out on that because the logistics of, of getting that group together week after week was hard. But overall, I think I'm personally more of a fan of, of larger raids. But I think there's, a, there's an argument that larger raids are actually more forgiving that way. And I don't know if we can literally do 40. That is a lot of people. But I don't think we'll build a raid size around six. Well, I, you know, my vote, I, I, I mean, to be honest, yeah, 40-man raids, logistical nightmare, but damn, it's pretty cool to have 40 people yeah, in the same so place fun. doing the same thing, right? Like, there's this certain sense of spectacle to it that I, I just really enjoy. And so that's it's definitely good to Going yeah. through these yeah. dungeons. Exactly, I mean, yeah. Game yeah. Can offer that experience. And, and like, you talk about an army going through, like, whenever, like, if you look at a Venn diagram between people whose favorite movie was Lord of the Rings and people that play MMOs, there is a huge overlap there. And so you're talking about these like massive battles, like world PvP. Where does that stand? I mean, I'm pretty sure this is going to be a red shard situation in your game. And like, what's the scale of that that you feel is fulfilling? What's the scale of that that your team really wants to hit? The funny thing about those really big battles is they're not super satisfying. Like even if you can get the frame rate decent, mm -hmm. you can't mm -hmm. balance PVP so that one-on-one -on -one is fair and also like five-on-one -on -one is fair. So yeah. those big battles just tend to be really, really chaotic. 
And yes. so where I'm going with that is mm-hmm. we may offer it and just not worry about the balance aspect of it. And if someone is really good at stunning whole groups of enemies, well, you know what? Kudos to that class. You're just being really good at that situation. Um, we would love for world PvP to be more about objective control and maybe even like politics, like my guild wants control of this mine, rather than let's just gank everyone we see who's who's not part of our group. How do you feel about territory control? Because like obviously territory control, like for example, New Worlds used territory control recently. Uh, there's been a couple of other games that use it. Obviously, you know, games like Rust, of course, are based completely around territory control. Like, how do you feel like? Because like obviously, this is like another like balancing in a lot of cases. Like, what it defaults down to is like pro players that are controlling the territories and casual players that are trying to access the territories. <laughs> do you feel like that's a integral part of of your game? Do you think that that could be a good part of it, or is it something? you kind of want to avoid? I think it could be part of it. If okay. it works out, okay. it will be because resources in our game are valuable and, and so players want them. The challenge of territory control, I think, again, it comes down to rewards. Like, yeah. yeah. You have to, the first question a player is going to ask is, well, what do I get for controlling the territory? It's like, well, do you get, you know, a star next to your name or do you get valuable resources or do you get better loot? And then the next question you have to ask is, well, if someone already controls the territory, what's my reward for attempting to, to take control back? Because usually, even if you have that kind of territorial control, someone wins and then it's a stalemate until there's some kind of like, you know, reset from the, from the game standpoint. So I think the question asked is like, what do I get from doing this activity? And does that make it fun enough to participate in? Yeah, I think it's just that simple. Like, I, I like your philosophy that pretty much rewards drive gameplay. Because I, I think that that's extremely true. It, it's true in WoW. I think it's true in a lot of other MMOs where, like, obviously, whoa, why is everybody doing this? Well, because it gives the best gear in the game. That's why. Like, it's pretty pretty simple, right? And, like, yeah, and go ahead. Terra Mill versus South Shore a lot. It yeah. was fun. Yeah. Like, it is for everyone for, like, an hour. And then you're like, but am I accomplishing anything? It's fun. And, you know, I, I gill a little bit when I, like, kill the, you know, the Tarn Shaman. Yeah. But then... Yeah. But then nothing comes of it. I don't like get experience or, or or loot, and nothing changes in the world. And after a while, you're like, "This is pointless." You're not going to go and do this for like a month, right? You'll do it for a few days. There's the novelty of it, and then after that, people move on. And it's nice to be able to be able to do that, but it's not like that should be a you know the default mode of gameplay. I I, I agree with you. Um, I feel like with with like a lot of MMOs, and I don't know if you kind of feel the same way with this, but for the longest time. It feels like every MMO is trying to be WoW. Everybody, every MMO is trying to be WoW. It's trying to be and recapture the magic that WoW had. And I find this to be very problematic because you're constantly looking in the past to see what people are going to want in the future. You know, you're constantly trying to chase after something that happened 20 years ago in a completely different world. What do you think is different about an MMO that succeeds in 2024 or 2025? The problem from my point of view is that MMOs are ungodly expensive to make. So if you're going to ask your publisher to give you $100 million to make a game, and then you say, well, we don't know if players are going to like it or not, that that suddenly (laughs) looks, you know, pretty (laughs) But if you say, hey, we're going to make it a lot like World of Warcraft, the kids love World of Warcraft, that becomes a much easier sell. So it's like, yeah, of course. The reason we think we have a chance here is we're not going to like wait till the end. We'll be able to say along the way, 
hey, players are really enjoying this game. They keep asking us, like, when's it going to launch? When can they play more? It feels like we're on to something here. Maybe now is time for us to launch and, and, and do big. But that allows us a lot more room to experiment along the way. Yeah, I think that makes sense. And uh, like leading up to launch, publisher, like being able to get the money for it. Uh, so is your game going to be pay to win? Yes. Oh, thank, thank God. God. <laughs> All right. Finally, <laughs> <laughs> tech film, you'll be able to play it. Oh, thank God. Yeah. Yeah. I, I mean, and that's, that's the big question, right? With all of these new games, right? Is like, you have everything about this game looks amazing because you're, you're totally right. Like, how are you going to recoup these costs? And there's been conversation about that with Blue Protocol recently, Throne and Liberty. And I think there's another game as well that's an MMO that's coming out that like, that's like kind of the, uh, you know, the, oh, but wait, uh, what's your philosophy on monetization? How do, you, how do you want to monetize Ghost in an ideal world? So to start off, I was totally joking about, about pay to win. Sorry, um, sorry, sorry. Oh, damn. <laughs> <laughs> Next one. Right now, if we had to guess, we would much rather do something that feels like a traditional box sale. Right. Or maybe right. a sub. Um, and probably not the... Um, free-to-play with microtransactions approach. Like, that's been done. I think players are a little a little tired of it. It can start to feel like a lot of the development effort goes into new things to sell to players rather than the core content mm. of the game. So, and, and I don't know. We'll see what the world looks like when we're closer to ship, but that's, you know, if I had, if I had to lock in an answer today, it would probably be that. It is crazy because I, I am 1 million percent tired of the free-to-play approach to MMOs. I don't like it. I like being told that, like, okay, you buy the game, pay your subscription, and you have a complete game. No other advantage can be purchased besides maybe, I guess, store mounts. But other than that, yeah. I, I love just the you buy the game, get a sub, and you're good to go. Yeah. I think subs started to lose their favor, I don't know, five or ten years ago. But since then, like now, everyone has a sub to Netflix and everyone has a sub to Amazon and Game Pass. And, and again, maybe the tide will turn and there will be some, some other monetization people are excited about in a few years. Yeah, I... I've cannot shudder to imagine what that could possibly be you know maybe maybe finally by then nfts will have caught on and people will, will have gotten <laughs> um, into that definitely I, yeah. I mean well and that's another thing right is like it, there's a lot of these like buzzwords but you talked a little bit about having a game that like applies to everybody and a game that's like uh you know kind of uh, appealing to a lot of different people for different ways. And, you know, this isn't, it's not really as popular now because a lot of people brought it up. Like the whole idea of like a metaverse. And whenever I think of a metaverse, what do I think of? I think of World of Warcraft. I think of an MMO, right? And so like, do you feel like a game like Ghosts can be kind of like that extra like second space that people, people can play and like be on? in the same way that people use Discord or, uh, you know, like other games like that. I feel like the best example of a game that's actually kind of transcended and done a real metaverse is Roblox. And I'm curious to see like, you know, because like I could see Blue Shards having a form of that functionality. Yeah, I think when the magic happens in those games, it's because you, you know, you finish up work or school or whatever yeah. and you say, I just want to jump online and see what my friends are doing. And you can even do that through Discord or Steam or something like that, but that's when it, it starts to take on a social space, when you're mm -hmm. like, I'm going to go see what my friends are doing. Let's see what kind of mischief we can get into tonight. That's a different experience than saying, I'm going to, you know... I'm going to go on to Elden Ring and see if I can get a new sword or something. Yeah, I, I definitely think so. And like one question is like, 
you know, you talk about Elden Ring getting a new sword. And I recently noticed this. I started playing Monster Hunter recently. It was a great game. I played Elden Ring as well. And I've noticed that games that are subscription-based usually it takes a lot longer to grind stuff. Like, I'm going to just be honest, right? It takes a while. And like, I'm curious, like, what is your philosophy on like rare items? Like, how, how do you feel like rare items, legendary items, like in, in your game, how, how would you get Thunder Fury in your game? How would you get Ashes of Alar? When, as, as developers, I think even as players, when we talk yeah, about yeah. the grind, it's usually when the treadmill is kind of too in your face when it yeah. feels like yeah. I need a thousand shards of whatever to complete this legendary and I pretty mm. much can figure out that I get a shard an hour so I'm looking at a thousand hours of grinding ahead naturally, naturally players you know we all know how these games work behind the scenes and there's random drops and I think it just depends on how in your face is it mm-hmm. if it's the kind of mm-hmm. thing where I play and occasionally I get some shards but I can't kind of math it out to oh the drop rate is x I think it tends to feel a little better I think there's a lot of room in our game for really rare drops, um, you know, chase items, um, invincible, you know, Ash of Alar are like super rare drops compared to um, um, Shadowmorn, which is like, oh, I have to like get these number of items and I pretty much can math out how many of those it's going to take. Yes, I've gotten both of those and all of the above, and it was, <laughs> oh my God, getting Shadowborn was a hell of a lot easier. It definitely was. So I, I definitely understand and appreciate that. And I think that, yeah, it's kind of like whenever you can see the man behind the machine, people start to lose interest and they're like, oh, I'm actually just on it. I, I'm actually just a rat in a cage. Oh my God, I can't <laughs> believe it happened again. We all know that there's a man yeah, behind the curtain. Yeah. I just don't want to see it. Like, if right, I'm on the right. Pirates of the Caribbean ride, I know it's fake, but that doesn't mean I want Disney to like turn the lights on and let me see all the you know the strings and wires and exit signs and stuff. Oh yeah, I recently saw there was an add-on in, in like uh, I think it's like Wrath of the Lich King where people have the dollar amount of how much gold is worth right next to the trade window, and like that leads me to another question: is like obviously with a lot of these. Uh, with a lot of these games, you've got botting, you've got cheating. How do you deal with that? Because I feel like this is a plague. It's happening with like every mm-hmm. game, especially now that things are being automated. I see people running like 72 instances of one game on one PC. It's crazy. It's a, yeah, it's a really hard thing to combat because on the one hand, you want the player economy to mean something. Like right. a, a very right. easy way to stop it is to say, well, players can't trade anything. Yeah. And then maybe the yeah. only botting would be, do you want to buy an account or something? The reason botting often occurs is because things have value, whether it's gold or stones of Jordan or, or whatever. Right, so right. if it can be automated now, it has a monetary value and someone's willing to, to pay real money for it. Um, it. It is hard to combat. There's not easy ways to do it. Um, free-to-play games tend to be a little worse at it because there's very low barrier to just like making a million accounts than um, at least something where you have to like sign in with an email and, and put down a little bit of cash to start an account. Yeah, no, I agree with you. I mean, like, and also I think it's about how much people are able to interact with each other. Have you ever played PoE, Path of Exile? Oh, yeah, I've gone in on that game so much. And it's like, I know there's people RMTing in that game, but like it never really affects me. Like I never really see it or feel it in the same way that you do with other games that have like large scale economies and stuff like that. So I kind of see what you mean. And like you mentioned, yeah, it's like the yeah. seeing the man yeah. behind the, the curtain. Uh-huh. If you uh-huh. see a lot of bots running around, 
or you go to the auction house and you see that everything is massively inflated, it kind of breaks that suspension of disbelief that this is some kind of virtual economy. And it also makes you feel like, man, I'm going to farm for like six hours and then somebody else is going to bot for six hours and they're going to be sleeping, I'm going to be working and we're both going to have the same item. You know, it kind of makes people feel like their time is uh, worthless. And I think that's like, that's like one of the worst things to happen in like an MMO is like whenever you you feel like the time that you've invested in the game doesn't matter anymore. Like that's the worst thing. And you mentioned earlier about like kind of publishers and, you know, like trying to make sure that you hedge your bets. And I've seen a lot of studios, like obviously, uh, you know, your studio with Making Ghost and, you know, you see Ashes of Creation and there's a lot of these like very small studios that are coming up and they're not going through the traditional means of, you know, big publisher like they did in the, uh, the, X, the Xbox One or the GameCube era, right? Uh, what do you, why do you think that's happening? There's, I mean, gosh, it's such a big topic. Yeah. There are strengths and weaknesses to like signing with a big publisher. The, you know, the, the strength is you get all of their expertise, whether it's, you know, things like marketing, localization. Like, I think players sometimes forget how critical good localization is, meaning you want to, you know, get the game translated in all these different right, countries. Right. A small dev team does not want to like stack their team with, this is our expert in the Polish language. This is our expert in French. Um, even though those are super valuable to the game being successful. So signing with a publisher gets you all that, but then it also gets all the overhead of, well, now the publisher has to say yes to everything, down to like, what's the name of our game going to be, and how do we market it, and when can we launch, and what platforms are we on? Um, but traditionally, the alternative to that was you self-fund, either by you know Kickstarter, which tends to have pretty small budgets, or you get um, investors, usually in the form of... of um, you know, someone gives you a little bit of money and they want to return. So if you take very long to make the game, they start to get impatient. And those startups are always kind of in um, funding mode. And that's not something I'm great at or think exciting to do. Oh like, I want to make a video game, not like constantly be getting seed rounds. So the, you know, the opportunity we had was getting um, a company that basically said, look, we'll, we'll completely fund your, your development but we're not going to be a traditional publisher kind of telling you what to do. You, you still have full creative control. And I was like, this sounds great. Yeah. Yeah. I think that, I mean, and, and really like, it is a bit of a selfish question I ask, because obviously like we started our publishing company, Mad Mushroom, and I'm curious, like kind of, you know, from being in this space for so long, like, what do you think is the best thing for somebody like me or for us to do in order to like enable indie and small developers to do their best work? Oh, that's a great question. Um, I think anything that we can do to kind of take care of the crap that those smaller studios really don't want to deal with, like certification for platforms for consoles is, is awful. Mm -hmm. Things like mm -hmm. localization, accessibility, like all of that is important, but not traditionally the way a small studio wants to staff up. So I think thinking about, you know, off-the-shelf solutions for stuff like that or ways to um, outsource or, or crowdfund even. Um, we were talking about this the other day. I have a love-hate relationship with, with add-ons, um, like UI add-ons, yeah, because I yeah. hate the uh, arms race aspect. But one of the things we really love is how the community can kind of step up and add accessibility options for like different types of colorblindness or font size or anything like that. Um, 
a small studio really struggles to offer all of those options. But once you kind of unlock the ability for end users to mess around with UI, you get a lot of that stuff. Um, not not quite for free, but certainly uh-huh. Uh-huh. Um, you get some of it. You think uh, Ghost is going to have add-on functionality? Again, who knows? We're a right. long way from ship. Right. But if I had to guess today, I would say we will allow a lot of add-ons that let you customize things the way you want, but not a lot of add-ons to kind of make combat rotations easier. Like, you know, if we do anything like a weak auras, it would be built in and not, you know, a mandatory add-on that you have to have because the game doesn't give you enough information about what's really going on. Oh, that's so good to hear. I watch people that raid and they have the weak horror on and it's like some sort of like a torture thing where they're like playing air horns and they're saying different <laughs> words constantly like, what is this? So yes, I'm, I'm very, very happy to see that. And, uh, I mean, no shade to weak auras. It's, it's uh-huh, awesome uh-huh. software. And it is. You know, it is. I think it's solving a need that the game by itself isn't solving. And that's not to say... Ghost just needs weak auras built in. I think it's more about can we build Ghost in such a way that the combat isn't so dependent on oh that debuff just dropped off. You better freaking get it back on the boss, or you're you know you're gonna wipe. Yeah, I mean people wouldn't use it if it didn't work. I mean that's really what it comes down to. Yeah, I well, I think that like one really big indicator is like there are certain fights where there are things that are internal timers, and then there's also things where there is like an external timer that you can see that is just like visual. Like for example, the boss having an energy bar or something like that that you don't really need a third party resource for. And I feel like that's something that games used to do a lot of. And now we're finally starting to see them do more of it where there's like more just blatant visual indicators that a more observant player can kind of pick up on. I think like Final Fantasy, even Destiny do a better job than than World of Warcraft about Hey, you're standing in the fire. Get out of the fire. Right. Um, right. And I, I can pick on Wax. I worked on it for so long. <laughs> some of that's a limitation of the of the game. Some of it's just the the you know the taste of the game makers to not be too overt about. I mean, you can take it too far. I think. Um, gosh, was it? Oh, I'm blanking on the game now. Um, that would put like just red target indicators. Like, don't stand in the red target indicator. Uh, well, Lost oh. Ark has that, um, and also Final Fantasy has. Well, they have uniform target indicators, and it's like, yeah, I, I think that like, yeah, giving people too much information can kind of feel like you are in a, uh, you know, you're on a on a ride at Universal Studios or something like that. And now, a word from our sponsors. This is your socks without today's sponsor, Vessi. Just disgusting, sloppy, wet socks all day. But that doesn't have to be your reality. Vessi has created a series of stylish, 100% waterproof shoes and other clothing that can help turn rainy days into something to look forward to. Vessi uses the power of advanced Dimatech technology to make Mother Nature look, let's just say, pathetic. Might I suggest that you start off 2024 with some delectable Soho sneakers or Alta High Tops. The Alta High Tops are perfect for this winter. They'll keep your socks dry and your feet warm too. Uh, Finn, here's your socks. 
The Soho sneakers are a lower profile option with grippy outsoles, a synthetic leather exterior, and waxed finished laces. You can also cop their overcast jacket and waterproof gloves. Not to mention the new Stormburst Adventure Ready Shoes. Don't get dumped on by rain this winter. Shop Vessi. You can visit Vessi.com forward slash steak eggs to grab your own Vessi gear today. That's V-E-S-S-I dot com forward slash steak eggs. Link is in the description. And thank you, Vessi, for sponsoring our podcast. What have you learned from like working on League that would give you insight into an MMO? A big one is the um, the champion design. Like yeah. those yeah. those characters have a lot of depth with relatively few abilities. Like mm-hmm. traditionally, four abilities, it often creeps up a lot larger than that today. But that's still a lot fewer abilities than your average MMO has, and you can still make a lot of interesting combat situations. Of, you know, really high skill check and a lot of um, a lot of depth with relatively few abilities. I think. Not to say that our classes will be as, as you know as small as league champions, but I think there's hope there that you can do a lot with less. So is that something? Because like I, I think about that a lot. That's a really good point. Because like you think about a game like Elden Ring, for example. Think about how many different things you can do in that game, but how many things basically come down to left click. Right. If you want to do an attack, it's like you're doing a situational left click, right? And like, how much of that are you going to implement into Ghost? Like, in terms of, uh, you know, attacks that are modified by, let's say, if you're moving or not, or attacks that are modified if you're jumping or not, or something like that. Uh, is that a philosophy that you want to see added into the game, or do you want to have more traditional abilities, like you know, World of Warcraft, well, especially like with Classic, right, where it's like you just use the ability and then it happens. This is, I mean, this is, we're talking about this right now. I had yeah. meetings on this yeah. today of, um, can we do more with like combos and, and, uh-huh. and uh-huh. you know, positional and situational attacks. So it's not just hitting the buttons as soon as they come off cooldown. Like uh, Brian Halinka, our, our, our lead gameplay designer, talks about World of Warcraft just kind of stand and deliver. Like you stand there and you hit and you hit and you hit. It doesn't feel like a real combat or even a, you know, doesn't you feel like a, a combat in a lot of games where there's some movement around and you're dodging and you're charging and you're getting behind the target. You're just kind of sitting there and, and whacking it with your weapon and looking for, um, my buff fell off, so I need to like hit it again to get the buff back on again. There's a lot of the WoW gameplay. I know, and like I'm, it, it's. I remember I watched like there was this one guy, and he did a series of of like going through classic WoW, and he was a league player, and he said all WoW is is standing and hitting, and it was <laughs> like, talking about Rav? <laughs> yeah, 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 exactly. Rav's great. And, and like I'm sure that like people would think that, and like yeah, sure, there's more nuances to it than that, but at the same time, yeah, it does have an element of that, and I think that it's like how do you create that visceral response of combat that something like Monster Hunter, something like Elden Ring, something like any of these other action combat games, Devil May Cry, uh, has that everybody wants to have, but in an MMO, it's like, well, you can't have the boss get staggered by every attack when there's 40 people hitting it, right? So like, how, yeah, how do, you, how do you balance that? We talked today about, is there, um, you think of, and again, I, I'm not trying to, Bust on WoW. It's a wonderful game yeah, 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 for many, yeah. many years. It's just a, a good point of reference. Um, things like Bloodlust in WoW, you generally hit 
the second the pull starts, unless the, mm-hmm. there's some boss mechanic that tells you really should save it for another time. But there are other games that'll do like a stagger mechanic, or you've got you've got you've got yeah, the boss in a weakened position right now. Yeah. So yeah. now is when you really want to kind of pile on the cooldowns. Um, that's something we talked about just today. Do we want a, a combat that's a little more about get the boss to the vulnerable state, and that's where, when you really want to pile on the damage. Yeah, and it's like, is the vulnerable state, I'm kind of curious what your insight is on this too, because you have certain games that it's like it's, everything is scripted in terms of like the vulnerable state will occur at four minutes and 34 seconds into the fight. So you want to make sure that you're using your one minute and 30 second trinkets. And so it's like, it's very formulaic in that way. And then you have other games where like, for example, Lost Ark, you have a stagger bar, or stagger meter and PoE2, for example, is adding this too. So like how much of that do you think is good to have it be dynamic based off of how players are doing the fight in real time versus having it be kind of programmed? Because if you have it be dynamic, then you can have a bunch of people try to like game the fight and if you have it be programmed, then you can have it be boring. I mean, they're, they're testing different skills and yeah. I don't know yeah. that one is necessarily wrong, right or wrong. The you can test game knowledge and timing and, and that sort of thing. You can also test reflexes and the ability to detect um, new information. I tend to be a little bit, as a player, I enjoy the more dynamic situation rather than someone saying, okay, the key to this fight is waiting till minute four and then pushing this one button. Again, it is a skill check. It's just, in my opinion, less interesting. Yeah. Have you, have you played Lost Ark at all? Mm-hmm. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Okay. Because, like, yeah, a lot of these examples you're giving me, like, these are things that Lost Ark has, and they've tried doing, and, like, you know, that game has some really incredible raid encounters. I mean, obviously, it's a it's a very different experience because it's an isometric game. And, like, camera angle, I think, is a, a, a big component. And, like, is... Uh, is Ghost going to be a free look camera, same as like, you know, World of Warcraft, Final Fantasy, or is it going to be isometric or fixed like Lost Ark or Leak? Probably it will be a free camera like, okay. like Final okay. Fantasy. Okay. But I agree with okay. you that Lost Ark does a lot of things right. And they to sure me, do. that feels a little more like a, a quote unquote modern MMO and something we're trying to learn from. Oh, yeah, absolutely. And I remember doing Vaulton. I feel like Vaulton is probably the best ARPG fight isometrically that I've ever done. It was incredible, yeah. And so I'm really happy to hear that because, like, you have a lot of these games that you know really get the combat right. It's just man, if if only the game wasn't pay to win, you know, and, yeah. and like you know a few other things that would be nice. And so yeah, I'm I'm really happy to see that. And what is your like? So you have like this is kind of a weird thing, right? Because you're talking about like uh, you know having things certified for consoles. How do you feel about cross-platform compatibility? With like, you know, a PC player being able to play with a PlayStation player. And, you know, even as far as mobile. Because WoW had a mobile app, but that was it. Overall, we're fans of the idea that you could play cross-platform. Yeah. You know, yeah. maybe your buddy has an Xbox and you have a PlayStation. Or maybe right. you have both. Right. And tonight, you know, you, you don't have the big TV, so you got to go play on your PC. It's nice to be able to just kind of move your character over and, and start playing. I think where it gets dicey is if you dictate the experience has to be exactly the same. And mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. within like the world first raid, if there's not 25% of people on Switch and 25% people on PlayStation, you failed. So if players decide PC is the way to do cutting edge combat, that's fine. Um, we're not gonna try to make everything 
exactly equal as long as it is playable and feel like you can you know make some progress. Right now, mobile is not something we're investing in. If you know if the game is awesome and people love it, maybe we'll consider it. But right now, it, it just mobile is really different. You have to worry about things like how do I add dialogue to these characters when I can't have a big download and things like that. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And uh, yeah, mobile games definitely have like a bad rap. And so it's kind of hard also, like, and this is an, an issue, right? Because like, especially as a smaller studio, you're managing expectations. And I feel like expectations have changed so much this year. Like the biggest example, like last year it was Elden Ring. This year it's Baldur's Gate 3. And like, how much do you think games like that, these like massive blockbuster mega games kind of shift the expectations because you look at something like, for example, Starfield. Starfield, I think, was it was an average game, right? It wasn't great. It was wasn't it was the worst game ever. It was just kind of average. But people perceive it as being a lot worse, for example, because you're comparing it with Baldur's Gate 3, at least in their mind, right? And I know there's a lot of people that like Starfield. I'm not trying to shit on them, but you know, it's just that's just how people see it. And so how do you manage those kinds of expectations? And do you think that like these big games coming out are like affecting those expectations in a positive way and like a negative way or what? Because I've, I've heard a lot of discourse about this with game developers over the past couple of years. I think you just have to be very clear about where are you, where are you really trying to make an impact on players? Where are you trying to be best in class? Like, Baldur's Gate did really, really well on the on the the companions and their interactions. And oh, things yeah. Like that. oh yeah, oh yeah. And then I think secondarily with the like bazillion different paths through the game, like do you want to kill this NPC or or save them? Um, you know that's that's kind of it. Like it's a well executed game, but no one looks at Baldur's Gate and says what I love about this game is it has like I don't know the combat's okay, right? It's, it's good. It's not, you know, I even think that the, um, the previous, um, Divinity game is probably a better combat. Yeah. I think the Divinity yeah. games is yeah. slightly better combat, but where Baldur's Gate is really best in class is, is the companions and where Elden Ring is really best in class is like this, you know, gigantic open world and this feeling like I can just hop on my horse and go anywhere and kind of find something cool there. Um, so I think as long as you really blow it out of the water in a couple of places, players are kind of willing to, be forgiving of other aspects of the game. So it's like you, you talk about like the branching storylines. And I remember seeing your tweet about that. Exactly. And like, those are the two points that I think that you brought up. And I, I definitely agree because if you ever, and like, this is not really a very great way to look at it, but like, if you look at TikToks, there's a lot of TikToks of different characters saying different things in Baldur's Gate or different things about Shadowheart or Astarian or something like that. Or with Elden Ring, I, I think that you're right too, with like people finding, you know, this Saren oh my God, this is a huge new boss I've never seen before or, you know, like doing some cool combat thing. And so with these kinds of games, obviously like a lot of them, you know, they're built around kind of like these best in class experiences, like what you're saying. What is your best case scenario? What is the best in class experience that Ghost is trying to deliver? We really hope it's the concept of the blue shards okay. offering you okay. something new every time. We think a lot of games, you know, pick on on, on Starfield or, or No Man's Sky, that what they're promising is infinite replayability. Like, we're going to have infinite planets and everyone is going to be unique. I don't think that players actually care about that as much as 
when I go to a planet, it's really, really cool. Yeah. So what yeah. we're trying to do is say, we'll have a lot of planets, maybe it won't be infinite, but we'll have a lot of planets, but they'll all be cool and they'll be interesting things to do and stuff you haven't seen before and, you know, cool combat. It's not super fun to go to a, a new planet you haven't seen before and you go explore it and there's, there's kind of nothing there. There's rocks. Maybe there's one like <laughs> yeah. pirate base that you've seen before. So that is where we hope that we really, really make a difference while still bringing that within the, you know, the overall design of an MMO. It's not just a game about going to these different shards. It's a game about doing that and then kind of bringing all the loot you've gotten and everything else into the traditional MMO um, endgame with, with large zone, you know, timeless isle type zones and, and dungeons and raids. So we talked for just a couple of minutes before uh, we actually started, and uh, you mentioned about some of the survival aspects of games. And how much of those survival aspects, because this has been like a big thing recently, like obviously you mentioned Valheim, this is massively popular, uh, you know, Pal World just recently came out, massively popular, a lot of these games have come out and they've had these survival elements to them and people have really enjoyed it. And I think that everybody is trying to hone in on like what is the, what is that perfect middle ground for how can you make a game that has the perfect amount of survival elements and so how much survival element is Ghost going to have? For us, we think of what the survival genre brings are kind of, yeah, yeah. it's a very designery way to speak about it, but new verbs for the player to do because you're not just killing bad guys. You're also trying to like eat and, and keep yourself warm enough and build a shelter and things like that. There's just things to do in in a traditional MMO, you never look at the trees because the trees are not interesting. The trees are just there to kind of block line of sight. Um, but in a survival game, now the trees are a, a source of, of resources. Like you, you want that tree, you want to chop the tree down. Um, so I think that's what it's about for us. It's less about, oh, you're probably going to die. And then, you know, next game in, in a roguelike way, it'll be a different experience. Like, I can't imagine you really freezing to death much in Ghost. That's not the point. But we could have a zone where it's chilly, and so you have to make special protective gear before you can go out and explore. Okay. A lot like Valheim. Yes, the mountains. Yeah, I mean, and I, I think that, like, for example, like, the food and drink, right? A lot of survival games have this, and I feel like this is very vestigial. Like, why do we really have just simply a bar? And you look at how much Valheim innovated that with, like, the types of food that you can have and how they change what you do. So you can have food that now, like, you know, with the Mistlands, it gives you the austere mana, or you have stamina or health, and you can choose that dynamically. So it's like turning kind of like a checkbox into a minigame. I think that that's, that's one element that I, I'm really happy to see some survival games actually starting to innovate on and, and change. Blizzard talks a lot about the design of, of make it a bonus. They took right, right. rested XP and they made it a bonus rather than a penalty. And I think Valheim was really clever with food of making it feel like a bonus. Like exactly. when you're well yeah. fed, you feel awesome rather than, oh, you're going to starve to death. You're like ticking off health or something like, mm. like you know, don't starve or, or other earlier survival games would do. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot of kind of that same mindset going into it even then. And if you're talking about like kind of the blue shards, what is the spectrum of experiences somebody can expect to have? Like, give me two completely fucking different games that you can still play in a blue shard and ghost. How, how different can it be? Um, that's a great question. Yeah, we're, yeah. we're trying to poke at like, what are the extremes right now? So I'll just make something up. Yeah. 
Imagine in this one blue shard, you have to find five pieces of this crown and assemble the crown. Okay. And okay. a couple of the pieces are just scattered, you know, in, in treasure chests or guarded by monsters. But one of the pieces is held by these knights in a castle. So you're going to have to, like, either invade the castle or somehow bribe the knights to get that piece of the crown back. So that's kind of a, a more standard um, RPG experience. Um, a totally different blue shard might have um, a vast desert, and it's really, really hard to cross the desert. So your focus is on what is the transportation mechanism I'm going to use? Do I, do I build a glider to fly across the desert? Do I capture some type of like giant beast that I can ride across the desert to kind of mm-hmm. get to the other side of? So there it's less of exploration and looking for a monster, I mean, a, you know, monsters to kill, and it's more of, I have this one big obstacle. What's the what's the right way to try to overcome this obstacle? Man, anytime that somebody starts talking to me about how to get across the desert, it just gives me PTSD from King's Quest. <laughs> yeah. Like I, I, I'm a little oasis. Uh, yeah, yeah. And did you did you have it like written down on a sheet of paper? The squares. Oh my god. Yes. Like two yes. up and three over. And yes. Yeah. Yes, exactly. This is a guys, this is a 1995 meme. And so, yeah, it was a, yeah, it was a really great time <laughs> yeah. back then. I was Naturally. thinking of uh, Ocarina of Time where you have to cross the Gerudo Valley Desert because I have no idea what the fuck y'all are talking about. I haven't played that in so long. It's a good game. Yeah. But no, I think that's uh that that's that's very insightful. And so, yeah, giving people different kind of obstacles to overcome. And also like kind of, and this is one thing that I, I, I always really liked about WoW is that sometimes you didn't want to play WoW, but you could log on and still play WoW. And I think a great example of this is Pet Battles. Like this is a totally different experience, totally different gameplay, but you can still go back and do this exact same thing. Same with like certain types of reputations, like Netherwing Eggs, and like the more different types of varied gameplay you have, I feel like it gives people more reasons to log on and less reasons to go to, like, other games, too. Yeah. Like, I can't do Mythic Dungeons with my friends tonight because of, you know, I'm waiting for a phone call or something. Yeah. But I can yeah. log on and, like, chase down some transmog or some achievements I don't have yet, and maybe I still have my friends on in Discord so we can, we can chat. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of sense. And, like, getting people to, like, if you have, like, a guild, right, are you going to have guild housing? Because I feel like this is something that most games don't, don't they, they either don't do it or they don't do it the right way. So the thing that annoys me as, a, I guess, both a designer and a player about player housing in yeah, a lot of games yeah. is, it, again, it's like, what's the point? Like, making an awesome house to show off is cool, and that's great in, like, Genshin or Final Fantasy. But our vision is more that within the blue shards, because you're building up bases you can just decide one of those is going to be either your house as a player or your guild's house, but still there are monsters out in the world. Maybe your place gets attacked. You know, there's a lot more. It's, it's more integrated the gameplay rather than just being this like one-off thing that you, you know, you, you can decide to engage in or not. Well, a lot of times like housing and crafting, like you go back to Valheim and you have, for example, like the type of housing that you have and your comfort level increasing your uh, rested experience and like how long it lasts. And you have other games where it's like, you know, the bigger your house is, you're able to have different types of crafting options available. Do you feel like those two things go hand in hand to try to like incentivize people to build things like that? Or is that just kind of something that could happen, but it's not that important? 
No, I think it's absolutely important. That's right. why when I said before you have more verbs in those games, yeah. like that's one yeah. of them is in order to craft, I need this type of building and to build this type of building, I need to build this other thing. And so you have this this um, this progression that feels good when it's when it's tuned well. Yeah, I feel like that's always the uh, that's always the difficulty, right? Is like a lot of times with MMOs and I think this is what happens is that people will find the most optimized way of doing something and like optimizing the fun out of the game, which like, in my opinion, I think is the developer's fault because they made the game that way. It's like, if you don't want people to farm the worst resource a million times and have it be super boring, but that's the fastest way, then why did you make it give the fastest experience per hour? It's just that simple. Yeah, we also a lot, I mean, speaking as like yeah, yeah. one and a half of bad developers here, uh-huh. we listen uh-huh. to players saying, well, I'm bored, I need more to do. Right. And so the developer's right. like, well, here, I'll give you something else to do. Here's some daily quest. Here's a grind. Here's, here's some reputation to get. I think sometimes it's okay to say, you know what? There's not a lot you can really do right now to optimize. Why don't you go like have fun? Go find something, like you said, whether it's pet battles or whether it's going and chasing down some titles you don't have yet. You see, like, I, I love that because, like, that's one thing, like, for example, Final Fantasy fourteen does so well. It's like you come in, you do the content, you finish the content, you're done. Modern WoW has actually started going more in that direction, which is really nice to see. You even see, like, Season of Discovery, the new classic version. Like, yeah, they're doing that. They're like, okay, yeah, after you've already leveled all your characters up and done the raid, you're done, buddy. Hope you had fun, right? And like, do you think that's okay for an MMO to say? Because for so long, I think that people were kind of wanting that endless grind. I think that now that's maybe a bit shifted. Yeah, I agree. Again, the risk is that if you're a subscription-based game and players say, hey, it's February and I've gotten all I can out, I'm going to unsub for the next three months, Right. you know, that right. starts to hit your bottom line. So then the developer's like, well, what can we do to keep them logging in? Because then they'll keep paying the sub. How do you, uh, how do you feel about the FOMO aspect of games? Like games adding in FOMO in terms of like seasonal rewards, login rewards for, oh, I was here for this time and this place and I did this activity. How much of that is too much? And it's like, would you want that in the game? Because like, Personally, like I see FOMO being kind of like it keeps people engaged into a game, but like after people fall out of favor or fall out of like the habit of it, then it keeps them from coming back as well. So like, yeah, like what's your philosophy on FOMO in terms of games? It's a really, I think it's a really, it's a really good tool to get players to kind of stay engaged. I mean, that's you yeah, know, that's literally yeah. what it is. Is my friends are going out tonight. If I don't go out with them, I'm scared tomorrow I'm going to hear these awesome stories of what they did. So maybe I'll just go ahead and go out with them now. And because MMOs can be demanding, I think a little of that is okay. Like, well, I wasn't going to log in tonight, but I really want to see my friends, so I might as well do that. I think where it gets to be the problem is when, again, like we're talking about the grind, when it's so intense that you feel like you can't take a break at all. Because people have lives and people want to play other games and stuff like that. So when it's so bad that oh, I missed a couple of weeks, so I might as well, you know, peace out. I think that's crossing the line. Yeah, it's like people kind of at that point, they almost feel like they can't keep playing because they're already behind. Yeah, like I I have people all the time, they'll ask me, like, it's a week into an MMO. Is it too late to start the game now? Like, (laughs) I mean, yeah, (laughs) like, should I even bother? Yeah, it's nuts. That's unfortunate. And like, so like with the, the meta chasing and obviously like, how do you feel like, you know, what I do or what Tecton does or 
what Emmy does or any any of us like with making content about games, like how much do you feel like the way that people make content about games has changed the way that games are developed? Oh, geez, like 100%. I mean, really? Really? I don't know. 10 years ago or something like that, maybe more, we would all, uh, the developers would all be like chasing, like how do we get an article in like PC Gamer? Or yeah. how do we get on yeah. stage at E3? And they're now sexy. It's, and now it's, how can we get like people talking about the game? How can we get buzz? How can we get people who are excited to stream the game? And then they bring their followers in. Mm -hmm. Because, you know, talk about the FOMO. It's a great way for people to stay engaged with a game without mm -hmm. even having to play it. Like you can't log in tonight, but I can watch someone stream or I can, you know, catch up on, on what someone is saying about the game in a video or something like. I think it's huge. Yeah, I think so too. I mean, it, it's one of those things where I think it's just a mode in which games have evolved. Uh, I think that the only kind of like, and this is more so perceived because I think that you don't really have to do this, but like people feel like obviously metas are way faster developing in the year 2024 than, uh, you know, 1998. I mean, I, I think like the best example, like look at Age of Empires, like people are still making new metas in that game now, which is crazy. And now a word from our sponsors. There's nobody on the planet that spends more time on their computers than us. And that's why we are the perfect people to tell you about the best PCs in the universe, Starforge Systems. We love our Starforge Systems PCs, and we know you will too. Starforge Systems has computers for everyone, from entry-level gamers to content creators like us. You can find a PC that is perfect for you. Not only that, but their custom cases, plate lights, and limited edition PCs are out of this world. Keep an eye out for early next week for their most ambitious limited edition PC to date. Head to StarforgeSystems.com and get yourself a new PC today. Yeah, I mean, I, I feel like how much is it to where how much do you worry about a meta forming and then just people are constantly only playing that one type of way versus having people kind of play the game the way that it's like, uh, you know, meant to be played can be a little bit patronizing, right? But, you know, in that same uh, spirit. I think there is a big problem around kind of the, the self-fulfilling prophecy. Right. Because right. Players, players hate to be wrong. Like players hate mm -hmm. to be ignorant. They'd rather be accused of having bad skill than kind of not knowing the current meta or the right classes to play or the right items to use. So if you're a streamer and you say, well, I'm going to like, I mean, freaking open up any kind of, you know, yeah. YouTube videos yeah. and all of it is about the new broken build for blah, 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 because right. that, right. you know, that gets them hits. And then people don't want to be wrong. So they kind of adopt that, that strategy. And pretty soon it feels like, well, there's only one real class in the game. All the others are, are Garbo. Um, which often isn't the case. Yeah, the community would yeah. just try it. They're like, oh yeah, this is actually pretty effective too, but no one wants to be brave enough to, uh, you know, to be the person who's, who's wrong or experimental. Oh yeah, I understand that. I have a friend that continues trying to play a rep paladin in classic WoW <laughs> and uh, hasn't, hasn't worked for 15 years and, you know. It man. makes him happy. Yeah, pretty soon it'll come around. So yeah, it's always a, it's always a way to balance that. And, and how much do you think that development should take into account those metas developing and player perception. Because like, let's say everybody thinks that this one thing is the best thing and you see, you know, 71% of players are all playing this one way. Like, you know, you know, PoE has this sometimes, WoW has had this for years. Like uh, pretty much every game has this. 
Yeah, we, we've actually debated this mm -hmm. because there's kind of, as a developer, there's two strategies to take. One is we're going to patch constantly and anytime anything's out of whack, we're going to fix it. Like that was League of Legends. Every two weeks there's a balance patch to like, yep. oh, yep. too many people are playing Janna. Okay, we're going to, you know, we're going to, we're going to nerf Janna. Um, the other way is like, you look at a game like Smash, they, they don't balance it at all. Like there's, it's entirely up to the community to make the meta unstale and, and then that community embraces it. Like they, they wouldn't want it to be patched. They're like, no, the community will find a way to kind of, of, of counter this, this really dominant strategy. Oh, I so love that. We know where we're going to land on the like, let's balance really, really frequently to kind of like keep things moving or, or wait a little longer and see if the community can kind of solve it themselves. Yeah, I think that's definitely true. I mean, I would have never expected in 2007 that Jigglypuff would be a legitimate competitor in Super Smash Brothers Melee. <laughs> I, I had no idea, right? But Hungrybox, here he is. He comes in. How can you possibly imagine that? And like, so I'm curious about like, obviously like gear treadmills because you have like in classic World of Warcraft, you would have to do, let's say, BWL to get into Nax or to get into AQ to get into Nax. And so uh, like Lost Ark is another example of this where you just kind of have a continuously growing gear treadmill that sometimes it's hard to catch up with. And you have games like, for example, World of Warcraft kind of resets this gear treadmill every patch. Now it used to be every expansion, but now it's every patch. How, like... What is your philosophy on gear treadmills? Is it good to, how often should you have resets? Should you have resets? Is this an expansion type thing, time frame? I'm actually really curious what your philosophy on that is. I prefer a kind of the expansion level. Right. Because right. I definitely get the sense of, oh, I had to, I had to tap out early mm -hmm. on this particular mm -hmm. tier so I'm way behind my friends and I kind of want to get back into it. And if someone says, well, you're going to have to do like these four raids before you can go to the raid we're all in, like that's unreasonable. Like people aren't going to do that. But if the catch up is too quick, it, it just takes the wind out of the sails of the people that, that did the hard stuff. They're like, why did I wipe on this boss 30 times when if I just waited a week, it would have been, you know, we would have one shot it. So I think around a year seems fine. If someone has to, to catch up a little bit before they can jump back into the cutting edge stuff, that seems fine as long as it's not, like I said, unreasonable. Yeah. Back when, yeah. You know, back when Max came out, it felt like, oh, you want to join us in Max? Well, you better start in Molten Core and then go to Blackwing Lair and then you can finally join us. Um, yeah, I mean, like, and, and there are advantages to that, right? Because, like, at least then they go through all the different content. But then there's also the disadvantages they can't play with their friends. And it's always like you're, it, it's not like there's really a right answer for it. And I think that's why it's like, it's so insightful to see kind of like what different games do and like what their philosophy on it is. Because I think that also like player interest is changing a lot. Like, where people were much more optimization driven. I think that recently with games that are a little bit more longer form and require you to do a little bit more and that have that you know deeper texture to them, I think that there has been a renewed uh, sense of, I guess, appreciation for that. And I think that you see that with something like Baldur's Gate 3 or even something like Valheim where you do have to do a few annoying things, but the few, those few annoying things like you know sailing around because you can't move ore, like that does create 
Like, I'm sure you probably remember the first time that you're sailing around that shitty little raft and you see a sea serpent and it's like, oh, okay, I'm dead, right? And then you lose your stuff out in the middle of the ocean and now you're spending three hours getting it back, right? And it's like, this is extremely annoying, but at the same time, it creates a memorable experience. So like, where's the middle ground between creating those special experiences people have and just annoying the shit out of players. What Riot would say that I've yeah. learned a lot yeah. from League of Legends and Valorant is you need the low lows in order to have the high highs. Mm. And so if you have a totally terrible experience, like you're running back in Elden Ring and you get killed and you lose all of your souls, that's miserable. But we're going to offset that with sometimes you're going to like beat a boss that you thought was going to be really hard and you're going to just get, you know, tons and tons of, of reward for that. So it's okay if the sea serpent knocks your raft down and you lose all your wood, as long as there are other moments when you feel like you're you're on top of the world, you know, you're you're giggling because you came up with some kind of crazy build and you're you're trivializing stuff. If yeah. it's all low lows, that's just, you know, why would that's just torture. Why would you put yourself through that? And that's one of the cool things, right? And like every game, I feel like there's a lot of games, this is kind of like a metaphor I I've I've used before. And like a lot of games, I think the best games tell you to get to the number four and they don't ask, you know, do two plus two, but you can do three plus one, five minus one, 10 minus six, whatever you can to get to that number four. And like the open-endedness of it is what makes the experience special. It's kind of like what you were talking about with Baldur's Gate 3 and like the massively branching storylines. And how much of that, like, because in my opinion, I think that having the more a story game like that and a game just in general branches out, like the first thing whenever I start a game is like, can I break this rock? What happens if I shoot this? Can I kill an NPC, right? I just try doing every crazy thing. And like each crazy thing that you're able to do, I think builds immersion. Because like now you're doing whatever you want in that virtual world. And I'm curious like how much of that is a focus with Ghost in terms of allowing the game to be like a branching experience with like the narrative or with like just the gameplay? Like how much different can a person's end game experience be, you know, depending on the person or what they like doing? Yeah, I can kind of think of three categories there. Yeah. Branching narrative is very hard to do in, in an MO. It's hard to do in any RPG and it's amazing that, you know, games like Mass Effect, let alone Baldur's Gate 3, right, really, right. really pull it off. Um, the other two ways where I think we have more ability is one, in, on the simulation side of things, part of the joy of having these blue shards is we can let players kind of break the world in a way that doesn't impact other, other players. Like, maybe you can lure a dragon in to the bandit camp, and if you do that, the dragon, like, kills all the bandits. Like, that may not work in an MMO, but you could totally do it in your own, like, private server area, which is what kind of what the blue shards are. And then the third way is almost gets back to what we were talking about, the gear treadmill. Gear treadmills feel like they're at their most shallow when there is clearly a best-in-slot and everyone kind of agrees on the best-in-slot. And the best-in-slot is very easy to prove because it's just... Bigger number. Bigger number. Warcraft, it's, yeah. What gives me the highest DPS against a single target? Like, that's yeah. that's yeah. the end-all, be-all. If I can ask a question... It's not that way in, in Elden Ring because the weapons are very, very different and they're very situational. So you don't just say oh, I'm just going to like grind my way up to this one you know, Moonlight Greatsword or whatever, and, and that's yeah, the only weapon yeah. that matters. Um, and so I think if we succeed in giving our combat a little more depth and texture, it'll also make the rewards a little more interesting, where the answer is more often, well, it depends on how you play and not just, 
you know, O plus three Agi, well, that's that's higher DPS. Is there something, Sorry, it's really is there something I can ask? Something that I've never really understood is class imbalancing. And games like League of Legends, where like some of your most popular characters fall off and they're not to be used for years to come. I don't really understand that because, in my opinion, when designing a good class to be like, okay, this character gets to 100. Now, how does this character get to 100? It gets to 100 by doing 25 times or doing 10 10 times or doing one 100 times. Um, and like for games with have a, like a heavy gear system, I understand that once they get to max level or they'll do more damage than a character who's at mid-level. Why do you think class balancing is so difficult for game devs to do? Because I see this in almost every single game that I play or MMO. There's always a best class to like some absurd degree, like Demon Hunter doing 80% more damage than other classes at the launch of Legion. Why do you think class imbalancing is like such a, huge thing in almost every video game. I mean, this was my life for a long time in World of Warcraft. Yeah. Um, part of the answer is because it depends on what the target is. And the community will often decide, well, it's the third boss on this raid that matters because that's the one everyone's stuck on or mm -hmm. whatever. That's the patchwork that is gating everyone's progress. And so... Let's just say on that fight, demon hunters just have a you know have an advantage, and so all of a sudden it's like demon hunters are overpowered. But if you look at the other seven raid bosses, that may not be the case. It may not be demon hunters. It may be you know it may be hunters, and then players are like, well, that doesn't count because that's not you know that's not the boss we care about. And it also depends on at what gear are you talking about. Are you talking about someone who just steps in the raid with just a few blues? I mean blues and a few purples, or is this like with every good you know best in slot gear? At which point. You should be like one shotting stuff anyway. Like, do you really care? <laughs> I guess that's fair. Like, what the is totally yeah. maxed out. Mm -hmm. So it, it's complicated. And then, it, you know, it gets to be like, well, the demon hunter is really, really good if you have an evoker and if you, someone is power infusing you or whatever. But in a different comp, you know, that, that effect doesn't happen. I think the problem is, it, for in my life at least on WoW, it was hey, we did these sims, and then we have these World of Logs parses, and those both say that this class is great and this class sucks, and then that just kind of became the accepted truth. Mm. Oh, yeah, it definitely is. And, like, you know, as soon as people decide that something sucks, then it sucks. Yeah. And that's it. <laughs> Whoa, why are you playing the class that everyone yeah. sucks? Yeah. What's wrong with you? Yeah, nobody's inviting that guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like a red paladin? Yeah. Yep, that's the example, 100%. Well, anyway, I, I want to say thank you so much for coming on and like talking about this. Like I've had a million questions, obviously. And so, uh, yeah, thank you so much for your time. If people want to play Ghost or keep up with it, what can they do? Um, right now it's very hard to play Ghost because we're not giving out... Oh, yeah, yet, but, true. Um, you can follow along. Our studio is, is Fantastic Pixel Castle. You can, you know, you can follow our website or whatever we're calling Twitter these days. Right. Um, right. We have just hired a community manager, and as soon as that person starts, we will have a lot more information out. Like, one of their first jobs is going to be setting up a Discord for us so that mm -hmm. we have a, a, a better way to kind of engage with people who are, who are interested. Again, at this early stage, we understand not everyone's going to be interested this early, but hopefully enough people out there are. That's great. And and do you have any sort of insight or time frame of when we can actually see some gameplay from Ghost? I, again, if it's up to uh -huh. me, I mean, I guess uh -huh. it kind of is because I'm the boss, but I would love to do it as soon as possible. <laughs> okay. Kind of okay. pull the Band-Aid off and get players used to like, oh yeah, this game does not look like a game that's about to ship. Like there's gray boxes and there's stand-in art and stuff like that. Like I kind of want to just 
get that out there and have all the memes start about how terrible the game looks so that we can you know, <laughs> just start having the conversation. Anchor, anchor it low and then go higher. Yeah, I, I get it. I, I see what you're doing. Yes, exactly. Well, thank you so much, Greg, for coming on the show. Yeah, we really you. appreciate it. And uh, guys who are watching, thank you all very much for watching. Make sure to follow Greg. Make sure to follow Fantastic Pixel Castles. Fanta Fanta God, what is it? <laughs> yes. FPC, yes. We, say, we say a lot. because Fantastic Pixel Castle. Okay, there is only one castle, gentlemen. Yes. <laughs> yes, thank you so much for coming on. Make sure to give them a follow. And... Guys, I think that pretty much just about wraps up the episode. So thank you, Greg. Uh, thank you again, Greg, for coming on. And uh, damn, I think we pretty much got it. Thank you guys very much for watching. And we will see you all in the next one. Peace. Again, don't forget to check out War Thunder for free on PC, PlayStation, or Xbox today. Check out our link in the description or in the pinned comment below. New or returning players that haven't played in six months can grab some massive bonuses, which include the exclusive vehicle decorator Eagle of Valor, 100,000 Silver Lions, and seven days of premium. All players can also get the Festive Elf, Rudolph, Grinch, Gaijin Snail decals, so make sure to claim these limited time rewards before the end of January. And thanks again to War Thunder for sponsoring our podcast.